Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Criminally Disturbed. I am Paul. And I'm Jamie. And we have a good one this week for you that Jamie's going to talk about, a case that she's been working on. Yes, this is going to be, obviously it's going to be a two-parter because I don't think, uh, well, the folklore ones were one-parters. Yeah. But I guess when I do it, I, I probably put too much info in it and that's why they always end up being two-parters. But... I just look at it and I'm like, I can't cut that out. Right. So, and that's what happened to me on the one that we recorded mm -hmm. last night. Mm -hmm. I started doing the research and then putting it all together and arranging it. Because if you remember, I said I was trying to figure out how to kind of arrange it and how to tell the story yeah. from which point of view. And obviously, I, you know, there's only really one way to tell it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, but once I started putting everything together, I started noticing that there's a lot more info than probably any anybody knows. I mean, there's just right. a lot. Because the info, I mean, it makes a difference. It does. It does. And we want to be They're informative. Right. right. Yeah. So, anyway, yours is going to be a two-parter. Mine's mm -hmm. going to be a two-parter. And, hey, not all of them are two-parters, but it, uh, it keeps, I hope, it keeps everybody engaged. Right. And speaking of, coming back. That's right. And speaking about being engaged, we do have an email address. It is cdisturbedpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page, Criminally Disturbed. And we have an Instagram account, which is Criminally Disturbed Podcast. So hit us up. We want to hear from you. Uh, we want to hear some critiques, I guess. Critiques, stories. Stories. If you have any personal stories. Sure. Or if you have anything, I mean, hell, you can email us and be like, I'm having a bad day. What about y'all? Something. I, we don't care. Just engage with us. Yeah, yeah. We like to hear from you guys. Right. You know, that's kind of it's kind of where we're at today. So, you know, there's a lot of buzz out there about motion pictures that have been released and things. Mm -hmm. And that's what... That's what kind of brought us to the story, story that you've that you've brought to us today. Are we going to say anything about that motion picture? Not or are yet. we going to wait till part two? Why don't we wait it either? I'll, I'll tell you what. Why don't you make the decision if you're going to give that, that little piece of information to those that don't know, either at the end of this episode or at the beginning of the next one? I'll do it at the beginning of the next one. Okay. Because the stuff that that certain movie is based off of mm -hmm. is going to be in the second episode. Okay. So, yeah. So, teaser for the next episode. The person that, or filth that she is going to be talking about today is uh, going to be ousted. The uh, inspiration will be ousted in the next episode. He will be outed. Outed. All right. Let's jump into it then. Okay. Tell us what you got. My sources this week were was a book titled A Monster of All Time by J.T. Hunter. Okay. In a lot of newspaper clippings from newspapers.com. I mean, you can find out anything on newspapers.com. So, so is that the charges I've been seeing come through on our bank account? Uh-huh. Okay, I see. Look, we, we just said we like to be thorough. Mm -hmm. And so, 
I go to them newspapers. <laughs> well, we do like to be informative, yeah. and we want to give you guys the most information that we can find. Right. And this is no different. I mean, obviously, we right. if we've got to pay for a subscription to give everybody the the most information that we can and the most accurate. That's right. Let's only, do it. Only the best for our listeners. Right. That's right. So, okay. Okay. The man that we will be discussing is Danny Rawling. Some people might know him. Some people might not. And if anybody already knows him, hopefully the stuff I tell will do justice to what they've already heard. Or maybe I can give a little bit more info that they haven't heard. Well, I will tell you this. There are people out there that have heard of Danny Rawling, but they don't know the inspiration. Right. So, let's go. Okay. Danny was born in the middle of the night on May 26, 1954 in Shreveport, Louisiana. Mm. Yes, this is, for those that don't know, this is one city over from us. I don't even know if I would call it that. I mean, it, they're connected, so... Yeah, they're separated by the Red River. Yeah. Yeah. Danny's birth was not a happy occasion. His father, James Harold Rawling, did not want a child. So he did not welcome the news when he found out that his 19-year-old bride, Claudia, became two became, excuse me, became pregnant 2 weeks after their marriage. Isn't that what's supposed to happen, though? I would think. I would think that if you didn't want kids, that y'all would have took precautions. Well, y'all would have already talked about that. Oh, that's true, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. James, Danny's father, had fought in the Korean War while he was enlisted in the Navy. He was now working in law enforcement. James's family had a history of mental illness. Uh-oh. Yeah. So, the story I'm fixing to tell is from um, his wife, Claudia, who is Danny's mother. She said that when James was a boy, he watched his grandfather slit his grandmother's throat from ear to ear at the kitchen table. Now, I've got to go back, because you said that there's a history of mental Ill mm -hmm. illness in his family. Yes. And he's in law enforcement? Yes. Yeah. That's a huge red flag. Right. So, okay, continue. Okay. Because I'm sure that's going to come up. It was said that his grandmother was soaking her feet in a pan of water when she was killed. So, according to, and I'm assuming Claudia got the story from James. According to him, his grandmother was soaking her feet in a pan of water. Maybe her feet hurt. I don't know. Epsom salt? Oh, maybe so. Yeah. And his grandfather came up and slit her throat. Now, here's where the newspapers.com comes in, because I did some digging, and it took me a little while, but I found it. Here's a story according to newspapers. Okay. On August the 29th of 1936, 19-year-old Winsett, I don't want to say their last names, found the body of his mother, Sarah. She had been strangled and stabbed through the heart with an ice pick. Mm. So this is the grandmother that James was talking about. Mm -hmm. And obviously the story is a little bit different. And I'm I'm trying to, maybe James was, because obviously he would have been affected by that. Mm -hmm. 
So maybe he just didn't remember it the same, or maybe the newspaper kind of sensationalized it. I'm not sure. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Her husband, Elmer, was charged with her murder. So this was on August 29th. On September the 18th, not even a month later, a jury deliberated for five hours and found him guilty. Wow, that was quick. Quick. He was sentenced to die in the electric chair on October the 23rd. God, dog. So that's not even two months. No. After the murder. Oh, my God. He was going to be fried in the electric chair. Oh, that is fast. I know. And I mean, well, this is 1936, so obviously things were a lot different. Mm-hmm. When Sarah was killed, she was 43 and the mother of nine children. Oh, my God. Six of whom were still living at home. Oh. Isn't that horrible? It is. So, that's a story that I got from newspaper clippings. Um, like I said, I don't know, I'm not saying that James is wrong by what he said. Maybe he was just too traumatized and remembered it differently. How old was he at the time? I don't know. He, he was a child. Wow. Because, I mean, this was his grandmother, and she was 43. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, another uncle of James's, Danny's father, laid on a couch, put a shotgun in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. James's mother, uh, Danny's father, had severe mood swings and suffered from schizophrenia, while other family members had stints in mental hospitals. So, I'm thinking since their dad, Elmer, that died in the electric chair, obviously he had some mental issues. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that's where these other mental issues came from. Like, James's mother having schizophrenia and all of that. Yeah, probably. I mean, unfortunately, it's passed, right. you know, down. And so, it kind of seems like that. Mm hmm you know. And, you know, and with his mother, James's mother having schizophrenia, I mean, you know, he saw, I guess, um, sure. her actions, yeah. um, her outburst. I'm not really sure. I've never been around a person with schizophrenia. But, I mean, I'm sure he, he noticed. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, Claudia, who found out she was pregnant two weeks after they were married, was abused by James during her pregnancy. Whoa. This included being choked and shoved down a flight of stairs. He did not want that baby. He did not. Claudia had a difficult delivery that required the use of forceps to pull Danny from the birth canal. Pressure from those forceps ruptured some veins in Danny's head, leaving marks there for nearly a year. Wow. Yeah. And I know these days... I don't really know if they're still in use, but I know like during my pregnancies, it was always like a try not to use forceps if you don't have to. Right. So, but I don't know if they're still in use or not. I've, I've never had them used. So, mm. a few months after Danny's birth, Claudia was pregnant again. Now, look now. <laughs> if so, you don't want to have no babies. Right. I mean. I mean, it was obvious your husband... And, and I'm not laying this on her, but it was no, obvious. No, I'm laying this strictly on him. Right. I mean, if you're the one that's not wanting this, then why aren't you doing anything to stop it? Well, she... You see, you haven't mentioned this. She may actually want children. 
Right. You know, I'm I'm putting this squarely on him. If you don't want kids, wrap that shit up. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that is just absolutely insane. The definition of insanity. Right, but at the same time, and I'm not laying any blame on her, but if you know that he don't want kids and you've already had a pregnancy and birthed a child and knew that he abused you during the pregnancy, did not care, why would you do this to yourself again? That's true. I, I see what you're saying. I mean, at this point, I think on both parts, something could have been done to... I guess. I, I mean, I guess, but... I mean, I'm trying to say it without casting shade on... Well, really, not on the mother, because, I'm, bless her heart, she did have a hard life with this man. Yeah, um, but he has the ability to not get her pregnant. And that is true. Like you just said, if he is that adamant he don't want kids, he could wrap it up. Right. You know, I mean, come on, dude. Right. But... Unless he thinks that... Now, um, you know, you have to wonder. Mm -hmm. Did they have the conversation? Okay, you just had this baby. Okay, we don't need any more kids. Mm -hmm. We don't want any more kids or whatever. Right. You know? Did they have that conversation? We don't know. We don't know. So, wow. Okay. Okay. Kevin Rawling was born on August the 15th, 1955. And obviously there was abuse during both pregnancies. Claudia took the children and left multiple times, sometimes for days or weeks, but she always ended up coming back. She filed for separation when the boys were toddlers, but she didn't go through with the divorce. And newspapers.com actually saw, because, you know, some newspapers will put, like, civil suits and stuff. I did see where, she, at one point, she did file for a separation. I'm not sure what year it was. So, I do know at one point she did. Because it was in the, the newspaper, but mm. obviously they didn't divorce. Mm. That's so, sad. Yeah, so she didn't go through with the divorce. She moved back in with James, and of course, the abuse continued. I mean... Oh, I'm sure it did. Why is it going to stop? I mean, again, definition of insanity. Right. When Danny was five, Claudia contemplated suicide by shooting herself. But she pointed the gun away at the last second, and the bullet went through the floor. And not long after that, Danny fell off the back doorstep and hit his head on the concrete steps, which made a big dent in his forehead. Oh, my God. Right. Okay, you don't make a big dent in your forehead unless you cracked your skull. It didn't go into detail, so I, and I agree with you, like, mm, like, how would you make a big dent? Right. Um, I don't know. It didn't go into any detail. Mm. But obviously hitting that frontal lobe right there. I'm that's sure. what I was just thinking about. <laughs> right. That's what I thought when I read that. I was like, ooh, that's not good. Yeah. Okay. Danny did do well his first couple of years in school, but he ended up failing the third grade. But that was attributed to he had frequent absences because he had consecutive bouts of mumps, measles, croup, and tonsillitis. So it was kind of like when he was in third grade, boom, 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 boom. Nice. That's... Kind of reminds me of one of ours. Yep. Yeah. After being held back for the third grade, his grades plummeted to D's and F's. Mm. And he did see school counselors, and they attributed his poor performance to an inferiority complex with aggressive tendencies 
and also a lack of impulse control. That kind of sounds like the frontal lobe yeah. damage. Especially the lack of impulse control. Right? Yeah. Wow. The family regularly attended Sunset Acres Church of God. And then when Danny was 10, they just abruptly stopped going because his father decided to stop going. Wow. Okay. The year after that, Danny walked in on his parents having a heated argument. Oh, man. I thought you were going somewhere else with that. <laughs> I know. When I was reading it, I was like, oh, God, what did he say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, his mother locked herself in the bathroom and tried to slit her wrist with a razor, but his father was able to yank the razor out of her hands. Dang. I mean, she's attempted suicide yeah. and all this stuff. She's tried to leave. It makes you wonder, what did he say to her for her to come back and then not leave again? That's what I was wondering. Because yeah. I'm, I'm going to describe more, but that was my thought. Why do you keep going back? It's obvious you're miserable there because yeah. you keep trying to do away with yourself. Right. And to me, nobody is worth that. I mean, no. you're worth more. Absolutely. I mean, and and now you've got the kids, you know, and, and you, I'm not going to put that on the mother. As parents, both mother and right. father, you have the responsibility of making sure that these kids grow up and have decent lives. Mm -hmm. And, okay, so if the father is a piece of shit, then it kind of falls on the mother. Right. Um, that's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate situation. But, and I, this is coming from a man, it happens all too often that it does. way. You know, sometimes it's the other way around, but not as often as the other. So. And I'm just wondering obviously, she's having, she herself is having some mental health issues. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if. It was one of those things where maybe if she went and sought out help, maybe it could have helped her better. I mean, obviously, this is in the 60s, so yeah. mental health obviously wasn't that great then. Yeah. But I'm just wondering if she had, if it was like today and she had access to it, could that have helped her and maybe also empowered her? Because I'm, yeah. I'm betting that. He yeah. just made her feel like nothing. Sure, sure. And that diminishes a person's mental capacity also. Right. So you're probably right. I mean, it, it, getting that help could have empowered her as mm -hmm. well. So, you know, there's, there wasn't the, as many programs for battered and abused women. Right, and that's back true then. too. And so, you know, those programs today do provide that empowerment. They provide that courage mm -hmm. for women to make that step and make, it's not a step, it's a leap. Right. For some of these women that are, I know one. Right. It was really hard for her to leave the person that she was with because she was fearful that he would not only hurt her, mm -hmm. that he would take away her daughter. Mm-hmm. And... That's scary enough right, right. there, you yeah. know, just take it from someone to take away your child. So those programs were not like that back in the day. And so they didn't, women back then just did not have the empowerment that they, uh, they have the resources for and this, that's true. this day and age. So you have to wonder 
what was going through this woman's mind. What was he telling her? Mm -hmm. Number one, for her to come back. Number two, for her to stay. Right. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't good. And no. then just the fact of, obviously, she he probably made her feel like nothing. And probably yeah. you won't be able to make it on your own. Exactly. You've got to have me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, this is the 60s. I mean, it was hard for women to make it on You're their right. own with two kids. Right. And the fact that he, I'm not saying that he did, but I'm saying there were probably threats. Mm -hmm. If you leave, I will right. harm you in some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. So there's all that that could have been going on. Could so, have been. It's a sad sad, pathetic situation that she was in mm -hmm. by someone that, if this is true, what happened, that someone is, is just well, I mean, if you think a piece about of it, shit. And, and I want everybody to remember, kind of keep this in mind as we go through the rest of the story, because obviously Danny, spoiler alert, turns into a horrible human being. But it kind of makes you think, you know, if his home life was different, if his mother had been able to get out and get help, how things could have ended up differently. Well. Not only for Danny, but I mean also for his victims. Well, a child growing up in a household where abuse happens, verbal, physical, mental abuse, they think, they grow up thinking that that's the norm. Right. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And thinking that hurting others is normal. Mm -hmm. Look at the case that I did yesterday, what you and I recorded yesterday. It was a situation where a child grew up in, 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 in a horribly abusive right. household and um, an absent parents. And so, hey, that's basically what kind of fuels it. And then you add the frontal lobe damage mm -hmm. to that. And I, I hate to use the, the term, the children have no chance. You know what I mean? Right. The, the, the odds are stacked against them. Right, because I think they would have a chance with the right person helping and guiding them. Sure. But I mean, that would take, obviously, mental health help. Yeah. And I, at this time, obviously, it just wasn't widely used. Right. That's right. So. And, it, you know, they had the mental health facilities, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to call them mental health facilities because they were not that. Right. Asylums. Right. But they had treatment, although it was... Questionable. Questionable. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of these treatments and stuff that they did on these people, a lot of it was... Uh, not practicing. What's what's the other word? Experimental. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, what I was going to say is is that it was also an embarrassment. That is true. At yeah. that time, at that day and age, it was an embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people that were prominent in the communities and things like this, they didn't seek that kind of help. Right. Because people would, they thought that people would look down on them. Right. And they would lose their stature in the True. community. So that's sad to say, but that's the that's the reality of it. So. And then also just throwing another thing in there from um, experience. And obviously, if anybody hasn't picked up on it, we are big proponents of mental health. 
It yeah. is very important. Absolutely. Um, just like if somebody is experiencing their whatever their individual diagnosis is, I mean, sometimes it's hard for them to talk to somebody that is does not have that. I don't want to say issue because it's hard to make that person understand. Yeah. So yeah. and and that also could be another issue. Just you know, not sharing it. Yeah. It very well could be. Yeah. Because the people around you don't understand what's going on in your mind. Yeah. And so it's harder for people to, you know, relate. Right. I guess. So, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, we are, uh, we're big on mental health because we, you know, everybody has the own, their own things that they're dealing with. Right. You have to have, if you're, and this is a, look, we're kind of hijacking the the case here, but I think it's important to say that somebody who truly loves you, somebody who truly accepts you for who you are, will be willing to listen, will be willing to try to understand, and will be willing to try to help Mm -hmm. in any way that they can. Now, I don't sit here and pretend to know everything about everything. I know a little bit about a lot, not enough to make me an expert at any of it. But over the last, you know, several years, I have learned a lot because it has taken me many years to open my ears and listen. I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) And... It took me a long time to grow up, I guess you can say, and and to listen to those around me and understand that it's not about me. It's not all about me. It's not all about what's, you know, about me or what's mine. It's about the people that are around me, that love me. They are there to help me and to love me, mm-hmm. and I need to be there for them and to help them, and I need to love them no matter what. And so that's my philosophy, I guess you can say. And for anybody out there that is dealing with their own mental anguish or anything that you may be going through, I encourage you to talk to someone that loves you, that you know undoubtedly that they love you. Talk to them and see if, if it'll help, you know. This is a bad situation. This woman was going through a lot, and she clearly felt like she had nowhere to go, right. no one to turn to, yeah. and she, she stuck, mm-hmm. you know, she stuck. So I, I feel really bad for this woman. I feel even worse for the kids. Right. But as the story progresses, you hate the adult, but you worry for the children. As this person's growing up, could there have been something done? Could there have been something that changed, just something so small that would have changed the course of his life? Right. It changed the course of his thinking. And this can be asked, that same question can be asked in so many cases. Right. Out there, you know, so. Because, I mean, just real quick, because we kind of. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> taken over, but I mean, mental health did play a big part in this first part of the story. Yeah. But I mean, with any case, and I'm sure you're the same, 
um, I always stop and think, you know, what could have been done? How could this have turned out different if somebody would have stepped in earlier yeah. or if they could have had this or if they could have had that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is the 50s and 60s, yeah. and, and at some point, the mental thing, you know, aggression and the, uh, the thought process may not have led alone may not have led to what happens mm -hmm. but then again the, you got to sit here and think when he had that injury to his forehead mm -hmm. was that the turning point was that the point where he started having thoughts of or decision making capabilities to be able to hurt someone right without any repercussions right you know that injury coupled with the mental illness mm -hmm. Think about it. If that injury would have never happened, would it have progressed? Would it have gotten this bad? Or, although this is still bad, would it have just gotten to a point where he physically assaulted people mm -hmm. on a regular basis or um, sexually assaulted women on a regular basis or something like that? Although that is tragic and, right. and, and the victims live and they live with that turmoil, what I'm saying is taking another person's life. That's final. That's final. It's, it's done. You cannot bring that back. You cannot take that back. So was that the turning point in this? So you have to think about that. Right. So now, okay. dis disclaimer, we are not psychologists. We are not. We are not psychiatric, you know, people. Um, we are not educated in those fields. So we're not professionals. No, but please. Take care of yourselves. Absolutely. Or anybody else that you know of that's talk, having. Talk to someone. Yes. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Go okay. ahead. We're off our soapbox. Yes. James ruled the house with an iron fist. Danny and Kevin were not allowed to have friends over. And they were not permitted to sit on the home's only couch. Only James could sit on the couch. Was it? Did it have plastic on it? Oh, I wonder. <laughs> but I'm just to me I'm like, did you have a golden ass or something? Is that why only you got to sit on the couch? Was he the only one in the house working? I wonder if he had that kind of he probably inner power. It yeah, and, inner power that right, you know, I hey, I paid for this. I'm gonna i I'm gonna be the only one to sit on. Right, because I never seen anything where Danny's mom actually worked. Yeah. Um so I'm assuming she probably didn't. She was probably, you know, a stay at home mother. Which is that was the time. Which which is probably the reason that he probably reminded her on a daily basis, you'll be nothing without me. That's true. That's mm. true. Okay. But I can imagine telling our kids, all 20 of them, we don't really have 20, we have seven, you can't sit on the couch. They would look at us like, uh, what? Now, we not only have seven kids, but only two of them are small. Right. The others are big. Well, no, I'm sorry. Three of them are small. Three of them, yeah. The other ones are big. And and the when I say big... I mean, they're bigger than you and I. Right. Our two oldest boys, our 20-year-old, he is how how tall? Six foot two? Six two. Six two, probably about. 220. About 220-ish. And the other one the, that's 19, our, fixing to be 20, 
18 fixing to be 19. Yeah, he's fixing 18 to be 19. 19. He, in a is, few days. he is 6'3. He is 6'3. And I guarantee you, he is every bit of 350. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're big boys. But sit, sitting on the couch is, you know, we're not going to tell kids, you can't sit on that couch. I mean, because we, we have a brand new couch. We yes, just we bought a brand, a brand new, new couch. couch. Because the other one broke. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have. 20 kids. Yeah. We so, only have seven. I mean, you know, they run and jump on it and things, and we get on to them. We do. But and then they, they, we have to make sure that they understand you don't jump on the furniture. Mm -hmm. You can sit on it, but don't jump on it. Right. But does that stop them? No, it doesn't. We have to constantly remind them. Right. And that's fine. They're kids. They are kids. They're kids. They're going to be kids. That's right. We're not going to stop them from being kids. So, anyway. Okay, we just keep... <laughs> hijacking this shit on this morning. What the hell? Oh, goodness. <clears throat> James would often start arguments with Claudia and constantly belittle the boys in public and at home. The, and because of this, the family could never relax when he was around because he had frequent volatile mood swings. Everybody would walk on eggshells trying to avoid triggering his unpredictable temper. The day before Danny started the seventh grade, his father decided that he needed a haircut. So he shaved his head. And obviously when Danny got to school, he was teased. <sighs> which is like, why would you shave his head? Like, I mean, this man, you he's were, obviously not a barber. Right? I mean, so, you were deliberately being an asshole. In my opinion, that's what I think. He was deliberately being an asshole. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and try to analyze why he shaved the man, the, the boy's head. And this is right before what grade? Seventh. Seventh grade. So, you know, it's at that icky time. You're starting yeah. to notice girls and... Wanting girls to notice you. I mean, wanting to look your best. May, maybe you know I can I can kind of picture. I've seen movies, I guess, and this is bad to take advice from movies or take your anal, analyzing from movies. But maybe he was like, "I'm gonna make you a man." You know, real men have a shaved head, and he shaved his head. Mm. But again, he's not a barber, right? So. I'm just, I'm not trying to justify it. I'm just trying to think what went on in that situation for him to do that, thinking that it was okay. Well, this is the 60s, late 60s, 70s maybe, and I can kind of see a, a, a dad, a, a hostile dad saying, I'm gonna make a man out of you. And, Why didn't he do it to his brother? Oh shit, I don't know. See, I, and I could be totally wrong, but I'm just saying it was because the man was an asshole, so, and I could be wrong. You know, you could be right, too, because right. it could have just been that. Okay. This story is actually from a neighbor. When Danny was either 13 or 14 years old, Danny was outside mowing, and James did not like the way that Danny mowed the yard. So, they got into a fight outside in the yard and went into the house and I'm assuming that the neighbor might have been close to the family 
because the neighbor actually goes over to their house and goes in the house and found James sitting with his knee on Danny's chest and was putting all his weight down on Danny. And Danny was struggling to breathe. His face was turning purple and he was pleading with his father to stop. And the neighbor said that James was just laughing. And another time, the neighbor remembered seeing Danny handcuffed by his father, which was on at least three occasions, including one time with his hands bound behind him as his father whipped him with a rope. Wow. And this is from a neighbor, somebody with no ties to the family at all. But he's a police officer. Yes. So you can't call the cops. Right. And that's what the neighbor said. She was like, I didn't call the cops. Now, I'm not, and obviously we're not sitting here saying that the cops would have protected him or not. We don't know. It's just that that neighbor just didn't call the cops because he was a police officer. I so, mean, you could have called Child Protective Services. But what if, okay, so we're going back to this was in the 60s. Were they that good back then? I mean, would they have stepped in and done something? It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's somebody trying to do something. That's true. That it's, is true. It's at least something. Mm -hmm. You know, say something. See something, say something. Mm -hmm. You know. Okay, this is coming from Danny's aunt. Now, this is his father's sister or mother's sister? I don't... His mother only had a brother, so okay. I don't know if this would be like her brother's wife or if this would have been like... Okay. His dad's sister. So okay. I'm not really sure which part of the family. Um, but she said that James would handcuff handcuff both of the boys together. I guess one hand and one hand where the handcuffs are between them. And he would kneel on top of them. James would also trap and kill cats. And one time he actually beat Danny's dog to death. And that was corroborated by Danny's brother, that their dad beat Danny's dog to death. Wow. This man is deranged. Yes. Mm -hmm. So when Danny was 14, he had a friend that introduced him to something that changed him forever. Weed? <laughs> it probably would have made him feel better. <laughs> One night, his friend came over and said, hey, I want to show you something. So they go outside and they jump over the fence into the neighbor's backyard. So he introduced him to trespassing? That and <laughs> while they're in the neighbor's backyard, apparently next door to them lived um, a cheerleader at their school. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And apparently she did not have the blinds or the curtains closed in the bathroom. So they saw her getting out of the shower obviously naked and wrapping herself in a towel. And Danny became addicted to peeping in windows. So he became a peeping Tom. He became a peeping Tom. He became a peeping Danny. He became, yes, a peeping Danny. And he would do this for the rest of his life when he wasn't incarcerated. So, but yeah, for the rest of his life. When Danny was 15, he did have a bout of depression. He actually tried to slit his wrist Again, and, he saw his mom try to do this. And I was fixing to say that. He had learned how to after watching his mother try to do it several years earlier. He actually wrote on the bathroom mirror with her lipstick, I tried, I just couldn't make it. Cry for help? Yeah. I'm telling you. 
A lot of things could have been done. Yeah. When Danny was at Woodlawn High School, he enjoyed history, and he played in the school band. He went to Woodlawn? Mm-hmm. But he dropped out during his junior year. Mm. He enlisted in the Air Force in June of 1971 at 17. He completed basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas and then served as a security police officer for the Strategic Air Command at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> he was on active duty for 19 months, and he did achieve the rank of Airman First Class. But he repeatedly received punishments for offenses. And it was either he refused to obey orders, he used marijuana, or he was just stealing shit. And it, it didn't go into detail about what he was stealing, so I don't know if maybe he was just stealing from other people in the barracks. or Because I don't know where he was living at, where he was. Like, obviously, we know where he was stationed, but I don't know. Like, was he living in an apartment? Was yeah. he living in barracks? Right. Um, and he also began drinking a lot. A, he started drinking a lot. <laughs> he also began drinking a lot. He did receive a general discharge for the recurring behavioral problems, and they noted that he had an underlying immature personality. I have nothing to say there. Right. I mean, so he started drinking. Mm -hmm. He was partaking in Satan's cabbage. He... In the devil's lettuce. In the devil's lettuce, and he was just basically acting out. He was. So they didn't give him a dishonorable discharge. They just gave him a general yeah, discharge. Yeah, just a general. Okay. And I guess what that meant was left it to where, like, in a few years, if he matured, he could come back. Right. They yeah. left the door open. Right. Yeah. So he was military trained. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. In the Air Force. I did not know that. I knew he was a uh, an avid hunter, but I, didn't, I did not know that he was military trained. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. He returned home to Shreveport with his parents. But he did become active in the United Pentecostal Church of Shreveport. He was baptized, and he attended services five days a week. Now, I didn't know church had services five days a week, but... I didn't either. Yeah. But, I mean, he was there and not out on the streets, so that's a good thing. He joined the church choir. He, he did like to sing. He drove the church bus for the handicapped, and he dressed as the Easter Bunny for the church holiday celebration. Man, going to church five days a week, they making sure you ain't out there sinning. That's right. You're either you working, and then you go to church. I mean, and it sounds like he had straightened up. I mean, listening to this, I would have thought, oh, he's he's doing good. Yeah, you think? He's going to do good with his life. Sure. Hmm. A fellow member described Danny as a nice guy who was very people-oriented. So while he's there, he met his first wife, Omata. Um, I don't want to say her last name. Okay. Um, I mean, the first name is enough. Right. How many well, people are named that? That's true. Well, <laughs> I, I have it in here, but I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to say her name, her last name. So... Danny believed that she was uh, very sweet and that she was sent to him by God because he had prayed because he was lonely, which I, I imagine he was. I'm sure. So he thinks she was God sent, and she might have been. 
They married on September the 7th of 1974. Throughout the time they dated, he, he was good to her. And he was serious about church and his Bible studies. Then Amatha became pregnant and he changed. He began disappearing from the house. He would sometimes be gone for days or hours. And she found out that he was doing drugs many of the times that he was gone. One night, two police officers appeared at their front door. He had been caught peeping in women's windows. And she later said that it was embarrassing. And I imagine oh, it was. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Their daughter was born in March of 1976. I'm not saying her name. And it seemed at first that Danny was happy about being a father. But then he would disappear like he was doing before. So Omata decided that she was going to confront him about his drug abuse. Like, you know, maybe if you weren't doing this, you wouldn't have to keep disappearing to go do that. Maybe your drugs are, you know, making you want to peep in people's windows. Oh, no. Yeah. So, no. you know, well, it didn't go over well. He took that as her trying to tell him what to do. So she ended up with a black eye. So, another argument after that, he ended up pointing a shotgun at her and threatened to kill her. So, by 1977, she was like, this is enough. So, she took their daughter and she left. Good. Don't look back. Right. And she stayed gone. Good. You don't know how lucky you are. Yeah. He was devastated by the separation. Well, you... But she tried to tell you. She tried to tell you. She tried to tell you. You shouldn't have been running off, peeping in other people's windows. (laughs) So it it gave him feelings of inadequacy and abandonment. I'm sure it did. That same year, he was, I don't know, it didn't say where he was working at, but he was using a bread slicing machine. So, the tips of his middle and his ring finger on his left hand had to be amputated because, I guess, he cut them off. Well, he amputated them. Well, (laughs) 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 I just said he amputated them. Yeah, he did, but you said that he had to go get them amputated, and it's like, well, he already did it. He did it himself. Yeah. (laughs) Damn. Oh, that's got to be a horrible feeling. When you run your fingers and, and hit that blade. I know. That just makes me... It makes me so, cringe. makes me pucker. I know. Yeah. I mean, I've cut myself with knives a uh-huh. lot. And, yeah, I can't even... I've cut myself with a saw. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just can't even imagine that blade as as sharp as it is. Mm-hmm. Ju- I mean, you wouldn't be able to stop it in time before it got too deep. It just, oh, yeah. Like, it'd go into you like butter. Like butter. Butter. Okay. So, obviously, Omata serves him with divorce papers, and Danny decides he's just finna start wilding. He hadn't already been? No, he has not been, but he's fissing to. So, you know that oh shit handle in vehicles? Like when you get in, I know it's not like the oh shit. That's what we call it. That's what we call it. Jeep's got a lot of them. Right. So grab your oh shit handles. Here we go. Here we go. So he takes out his pain and anger from getting the divorce papers on a brunette college girl that lived a few blocks from his house. In the middle of the night, he broke into her house and he raped her. Is this here? Yes. Is this? Yes. 
Uh, this is the first time that he raped somebody, but it's not going to be his last. In May of 1979, he robbed a 7-Eleven convenience store near his home, which he's still in Shreveport. The clerk hands him $11 from the cash register, and he looks at it, and he was like, this is not worth keeping. So he gave the clerk the $11 back. <laughs> you need this more than me. Right. <laughs> he was wearing the ski mask and gloves, so he didn't leave any fingerprints at the scene. That's got to be the nicest robber ever. I know. So he was he was later na named as a suspect, but he was never charged. The next night after the 7-Eleven, he robs Charlie's Lounge, which was a small bar. Shortly before midnight, wearing brown gloves and a blue ski mask, he leaves with the contents of the bar's cash box. I don't know how much he made off with it, didn't say. On May the 15th, he's wearing a brown sack over his head. He robs Eleanor Liquor. Is he a New Orleans Saints fan? I don't know. They wear brown sacks? Back then they did. Oh. Well, in the 80s, they called them uh, the New Orleans Aints. Oh, yeah. okay. He left with approximately $200 from Eleanor Liquor. <laughs> yeah, so now he's traveling. On May 25th, he has made it to Montgomery, Alabama. Okay. At 8.25 p.m., he strolls into a Winn-Dixie grocery store. He's wearing a brown ski mask and jeans. He has a bag and a Smith & Wesson revolver in his hand. He orders the cashiers to fill up his bag, and he flees on foot with about $800. Ooh, dang. That was worth it. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, a little odd that a, a little, you said it was a, a Winn-Dixie? Winn mm-hmm. Okay. A week later, he has made it to Columbus, Georgia. Before 9 p.m., he walks into another Winn-Dixie, so apparently these are his favorites. I've been to Columbus. Have you? Mm-hmm. He's using the same gun and wearing the same brown ski mask. He walks to several cash registers, and they fill his bag with $956, and he runs into the nearby woods. Trick or treat, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Half an hour later, three police officers find him hiding in the bushes. He surrenders without resisting. And at the police station, he confesses to the robbery. And the gun that he's been using, he says, was his father's service revolver. He pleads guilty to the Columbus robbery and is sentenced to six years in the Muskegee County Jail. While he is in jail in Georgia, he pled guilty to the robbery of the Montgomery, Alabama, Winn-Dixie. He's then transferred to Georgia State Prison. Ooh. Yeah. Two months later, while clearing stumps as part of the work detail, he decides uh, he wants to make a run for it. So he tells them he needs to go take a poop in the woods. And they tell him, go ahead. They catch up to him shortly afterwards, so he didn't get that far. So while he's in the prison, he as he's looked over by a psychiatrist, not looked over. <laughs> um, he's visited by a psychiatrist, and he's diagnosed with a personality disorder an antisocial trend and a tendency to blame others for his problems. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, I mean, he kind of has, really, he kind of has people to blame. He does. I mean, yeah, your upbringing had a lot to do with it, 
but at the same time, it was your choice to go rob these stores. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, that, I'm not disputing that. Oh, okay. For sure. I'm just saying the people that you do have to blame, they're not committing these crimes. Right. But look back at what we talked about. The frontal lobe injury. The frontal lobe yeah. injury. Was he ever taken into the hospital? Was that ever fixed? Was, you know, the abuse that happened that right. he witnessed and things. Okay, you can blame that inside of you. You can blame that on them inside of you. You, you have no one else to blame. For your actions. For your actions. Right. But yourself because you're making these decisions. Right. So. He tries to escape again. But this time he suffers an injury to his right testicle. <laughs> a guard with a third degree black belt in Taekwondo, I guess, kicked him in his crotch. Good. But he did earn an early release from Georgia in 1982, but he was then transferred to the St. Clair County Jail in Alabama to serve two more years for the Winn-Dixie robbery in Alabama. These idiots make him a jail trustee. Now, he's done tried to escape twice while he was in Georgia. I would think that they would have let Alabama know, Yeah, maybe. Maybe they didn't, so he becomes a trustee. And he has reduced restrictions on his movement, so he's moving around somewhat freely. In July of 1982, he escaped while taking out the trash. He was recaptured two days later in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Oh, shit. He made it a long ways in two days. He did. He serves the remainder of his sentence doing hard labor at Staten Correctional Facility in Alabama. So they're like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to do some hard labor. So he completed his Alabama sentence and he's hitchhiking. He's in Mississippi. It's June 1985. Somebody, a guy stops him, picks him up, offers him a ride. Well, that driver gets pulled over and he's, the driver's arrested because he was driving under the influence. <laughs> So, as the cops are carting the driver away, he tells Danny, he's like, hey, I got a forty-five handgun in my glove compartment. Can you watch it for me? Of course, Danny's like, I don't know if he knew what he meant by watch it for me, but Danny took it as... I'm going to use I'm this. I'm going to use it. It's mine now. So I mean, you know, you got to watch and make sure that Russ don't collect on it, so he got to use it. Right. And he puts it to use. Mm. On July 22nd of 1985, he uses that gun to rob a Kroger in Clinton, Mississippi. Damn. He's wearing a black ski mask and gloves. He walks through the store's shopping cart door at 10, 10 p.m. And he yells, this is a holdup. So he, he approaches the closest cashier and tells the man, put the money in the bag. Well, the cashier thinks that it's his friends playing a joke on him. <laughs> so he's laughing. In Danny's face and Danny repeats put the money in the bag and I guess the cashier is like oh shit this ain't my friend <sighs> so he did so Danny made it with made away $300 he's arrested the next morning when the Clinton police catch him driving a 10 1984 Ford LTD he had his pilot's license yeah cuz that cuz that was a that's long a car, long car. <laughs> The car had been reported stolen by its owner less than an hour earlier. So, mm. he stole the car. So, he goes back to court. On March 20th of 1986, he arrives for his trial with shaved eyebrows. Don't know why. Maybe he had lice in, the, in his eyebrows? Maybe. But he told the judge to cut off his hands so that he will not be able to commit any more robberies. 
He did plead guilty. Did the judge cut off his hands? No. Oh, okay. No, he did plead guilty, and he was sentenced to four years at the Hines County Jail. So when he gets to the jail, a clerk calls Danny's parents, I guess, to say, hey, have your son here. Do y'all want to put anything on his books, I guess, for commissary or whatever? And his dad curses the clerk and, you know, basically, why did you call me? Don't call me about it. And he told the clerk to never contact him again about his son of a bitch son. Well, mm -hmm. so there, so you're saying there is a chance that his dad loves him. I felt so much love from that statement I right mean, there. So, you know. Yeah. Wow. On April 14th of 1986, he escaped from the Hines County Jail by swimming across the Snake River. Now... Was there a lot of snakes in it? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm kind of like, so was it named Snake because, you know, it was kind of zigzaggy like a snake? Or was there really a lot of snakes in it? I don't and know. this is in Mississippi? Yes. It's probably got a lot of snakes in it. If, ooh, okay. Oh, you wouldn't have done that. Oh, hell no. I, I just did my time. Right. <laughs> right? Shit. Six days later, deputies question him when they see him walking along I-10 in El Paso, Texas. What the hell? I, I mean, that is a long way. Yeah, I'm assuming he's hitchhiking. I, I guess. Maybe hoping somebody else will get arrested and he could steal another gun. I mean, damn. Yeah. So, he gave the police a false identification, and they're like, yeah, that don't exist. So, he tells them, okay, I'm Danny. And <laughs> Danny, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> he, they arrest him, and he's extradited back to Mississippi. But this time, he is sent to Parchman Prison, where they deem him an escape risk. No shit. I mean... <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so he begins his sentence in unit number 27 on May the 4th of 1986. In October, he petitioned to transfer to another unit because some of the other prisoners knew that his dad was a cop. So they were harassing him and he didn't feel safe. He felt like his life was in danger. And I'm just thinking, um, I don't know about that. Because he was not a little guy. I mean, he was over six feet tall and 200 something pounds. So... I don't know about that. Maybe he just wanted to be moved. But I just, maybe maybe that's what it was. It was all a ploy. Right, because I just really don't see him being. And, and second of all, how did they find out that his dad from Mississippi? How did they find out that his dad was a cop? I have no idea. Unless, unless he said, he said something. it. Yeah. Unless he said something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was transferred into a administrative segregation unit. But a few months later, one of the guards moved him to a cell at the end of the oldest part of the prison. So the guard was actually being salty <laughs> because when Danny was moved to that new part of the to that new cell, the prisoner that had been in the cell that guard had made friends with, and that prisoner had been there for a little while. So that prisoner had to be moved for Danny to be put in that cell. So this guard is salty and is like, "Okay, I'm going to get you back." So. He moved him to one of the worst cells in the prison in the middle of the winter. So, this, this cell was described as a hellhole, a bitter cold, so I guess it really didn't have good heat because it was in the oldest, older part of the prison. It had roaches and rats. 
Also, raw sewage regularly seeped into his cell through the floor and flowed from a broken drain down the hall into his cell, and it would flood his cell. So, he was locked in his cell for 24 hours a day. He was only let out for occasional showers. His, ugh, I don't like this part, his only companions were three spiders lurking in their webs in one corner of the ceiling. So, in one well, day... Well, I mean, at least he didn't have roaches and rats as companions. Well, that's true. One day he kills two of the spiders because he was just pissed off. He was in a fit of anger, so I don't know how that one spider got lucky, but it did. Guess because that one spider's name is Charlotte. <gasps> that's right. Mm -hmm. So he stayed in that cell for eight months, and he served three years of his four-year sentence before being paroled on July 29th of 1988. In solitary confinement. Yes. He comes back to Shreveport. To his parents' house. No, man. You need to go on somewhere else. Right? So, in September of 1988, he meets 55-year-old Lillian Bunny Mills when his father invited her to their home for dinner. So, Bunny walks in the door. We're going to call her Bunny. Bunny. Okay. When I like she, that name. I know. It's cute, ain't it's it? It's cute. When Bunny walked in the door, Danny remarked on how beautiful she looked, so he's automatically taken. So Bunny has not only got a cool-ass name, she's beautiful. Right. Wow. Okay. After they ate dinner, they took turns playing Bunny's guitar. What the hell? Apparently, she plays guitar. I'll and, be you know, down. I said he likes to sing, so <laughs> by November of 1988, their friendship had become a romantic relationship. Bunny did say that he was always a nice guy around her, and he never acted violent in any way, but that he would behave very childlike and often did not act his age. So she had said he was like a teenager prone to taking unnecessary risk. That's that. Yeah. That's that lobe damage. Right. And her and Danny would date off and on for three years. Neighbors in the neighborhood, when he came back this time, said that Danny was a peculiar loner. Said that he would jog down the street dressed like Rambo, wearing a bandana, boots, and camouflage pants. It was big about that time. Yeah. He was, at this time, Danny was six foot two and 180 pounds. He would also lift weights in the yard and sing songs to the neighborhood kids while playing his guitar. So apparently he had a guitar too. And everybody said that he was nice with the neighborhood kids, but they also thought it was kind of strange at his age that he was nice to the neighborhood kids. Now, nobody ever said that he ever actually did anything to the kids. Mm -hmm. like, I'm just thinking maybe he probably was stunted, maybe mentally. Oh, yeah. And he just probably related better to them. Sure. Yeah, but it was nothing like you know, creepy old man. Right. Come get in my van. Right. Yeah. So from October of 98 through April of 89, he worked at the Western Sizzler, which we don't have those anymore. No, we don't. Walmart and Circle K. And he was not at any of them for more than a month or two. Okay. In June of 1989, he started working at Poncho's Mexican Buffet and Hey! I know, we don't have that anymore either. I know, that was one of the good ones too. I love raising the flag. Yeah, that was some good food. Yeah. Back in the day. Back in the day. On November the 4th, he was fired from Poncho's for failing to come to work for the preceding three days. 
He said it was due to a scheduling conflict that he wasn't on the schedule. Somebody changed it. Um, so he, he's furious. So in his mind, he's thinking he was just unjustly fired because it was a schedule mess up. That's why he wasn't there. So he proceeds to make a big scene in front of customers. And Never was, do that. Right, and was threatening the manager. So on Saturday, November the 4th, 1989, around 6 p.m., 55-year-old Tom Grissom was cooking on the grill in his backyard. He was looking forward to his approaching retirement as a section chief for the Business Communication Systems Department at AT&T. Okay. He was well-liked in the Southern Hills neighborhood. He had actually been there for nearly 20 years. Oh, well, that's it. Yep. His 24-year-old daughter, Julie, lived with him. She was an attractive young woman with sandy brown hair and green eyes. She had been on the dance team in the homecoming court at Southwood High School. She actually moved to Baton Rouge for a couple of years. She was attending classes at LSU, but she had moved back up here to save money and kind of help her dad out, so she moved back in with him. She was working at Dillard's um, as a sales lady. So this weekend, uh, Tom's grandson, Sean, who's eight, we're spending the weekend with him and Julie uh, because it was Sean's birthday weekend. Mm. And he chose to spend it with his grandpa and his Aunt Julie. So the last time that neighbors seen Tom and Sean was around 5.20 p.m. that evening. They were out together in the backyard. And then not long after that, Julie arrived home from work. Within minutes of Julie's arrival, an unseen intruder snuck into their house. It was Danny. Hmm. Tom, because he had been grilling, had left the back door open, mm -hmm. and Danny just came in through the open back door. He came into the living room. He was wearing camouflage pants, jungle boots, black t-shirt, leather gloves, and a mask. Mm. He had a K-bar knife and a thirty-eight revolver. And I had a little story on the K-bar knife, but it was uh, later on in the episode because he bought another K-bar knife, so I guess I'll just leave that story there. He commanded that the Grissoms lay on the floor. He handcuffed Tom behind his back and duct-taped his mouth closed. He duct-taped Julie's hands behind her back and he taped her mouth closed. He did the same to eight-year-old Sean. He led Tom to the utility room and stabbed him in the right kidney and below his sternum, dri driving the knife upward into his heart. He then returned to the living room and told Sean, sorry to have to do this kid and I'm not going into detail about what he did to Sean, so. He then led Julie into Tom's bedroom and undressed her. He led her into the bathroom and raped her on the sink countertop. Then he placed her in the bathtub and he washed her vagina. He then led her back into Tom's bedroom, forced her to lay on the bed face down and stabbed her three times in the back. Once on the right side, once on the left side and once over the spine. She died in less than 10 seconds. He then pulled her body to the other side of the bed, removed the tape, he spread her legs, went to the kitchen and got some vinegar and washed out her vagina again. He left her spread eagle on the edge of the bed. He returned to the utility room with some clothing items and he placed them in the washer and washed them. And when he was done, he made sure to remove the tape and the handcuffs from Tom and the tape from Sean and he left. 
Mm. So on Monday, November the 6th, because remember, Sean was staying the whole weekend at, at Tom's house. Sean's mother became concerned because the school contacted her and said he did not show up. Mm. So she tries to call Tom's house and he, she's getting no answer. So she calls the police. So the police contacted one of the neighbors to see if they could walk over to the house real quick before they dispatched somebody to see if they could get Tom to come to the door. So about 8.45 a.m., their neighbor, Bob Coles, walked to Tom's house to make sure everything was okay. He walked to the front of the house, and he was like, everything was quiet, quiet, and that was just weird. So he walked to the side of the house, and the laundry room door was unlocked, so he cracked it open, and he sees Tom's body laying on the floor. Mm. So he obviously slammed the door, and he ran back home and called police. So the Streetport detectives start investigating. They have no suspects in mind. By March the 8th, they acknowledged that the Grissom investigation had reached a dead end. And the only detective that was still working on the case full-time at that point was pulled off and reassigned to other cases. Mm. So for a little while, this case is, uh, it remains a cold case. Okay. So in March of 1990, you know, Danny, a few months previous, had been fired from Poncho's. Mm -hmm. Bunny talks to an electrician friend of hers and says, hey, can you hire Danny? He needs a job. So the electrician said, sure. Danny worked there for three weeks before he was laid off because they really didn't have like a lot of customers. Mm -hmm. But the friend did say that Danny was a hard worker and he would not hesitate to ever hire him again. Okay. So... During Danny and Bunny's relationship, Danny kind of opened up more about his father, and he told her about times, like, when he was married to Omatha. Um, I guess maybe they were living with his parents at some point. His father came into their bedroom and yanked the covers off of him, off of Danny, and he's laying there naked in the bed. And he said his father held a knife to his throat in front of his wife. So Bunny's thinking that he's, obviously, he carries complex fear and guilt and some anxieties from childhood. So she convinces him to go to see a psychiatrist at the Shreveport Mental Health Clinic. He goes, but from the beginning, he resented being there and he didn't like being analyzed by the psychiatrist and he just terminated the session. On April the 27th of 1990, Danny was in a serious car accident during a severe storm. He was on his way home from work at the Superior Bar and Grill. We've been there. They got Holy some good food. Shit. Yeah. Oh my God. How did he get a job there? I don't know. That so, place is nice and expensive nice, as hell. Very expensive. And some really good food. As a matter of fact, was that our first date? No, wait a minute. The Superior Bar and Grill is the Mexican restaurant. Oh. Yeah. Not, that's the Superior Steakhouse. <gasps> Oh, okay. Yeah, well, we we've been to, to Superior Bar and Grill, too. We have. They yeah. got some good margaritas. They do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Never mind. I was fixing to go into a store, but. <laughs> so, as he's on his way home, meteorologists issued a tornado warning for the area. In a freak occurrence, his car hydroplaned at the same time that a gust of wind hits it. So, it propelled the car over 12 feet in the air. Wow. Smashing it against the top of a telephone pole. He was ejected and knocked unconscious after injuring his head on impact. There we go. Yeah. There's another one. 
After he recovered, he resumed peeping into windows at night. The peeping in windows did then led into breaking in the houses, which then escalated to burglaries and rape. I don't know that it escalated. He had already done all that. Yeah, but... You know? That's true. In Bossier City, he broke into a trailer with a woman and baby inside. He had a knife, a mask, and duct tape. As he tried to subdue the woman, she actually grabbed a knife, which just makes me cringe. Yeah. Um, but somehow when she did that, she managed to get away from him. In Treeport, he sexually assaulted a woman and stole a thirty-eight revolver from her. He also raped a 17-year-old after taping her hands and eyes with duct tape. And he didn't say where she lived at, so maybe because she was 17. So he's he's learning that he likes being in control of his sure. victims, mm -hmm. and also he's becoming addicted to the excitement yeah. of what's going on. On May 18th of 1990, Danny and his father have a fight that nearly killed his father. He, Should have. He lives. It started when Danny walked into the kitchen and put his foot on a bench to tie a shoe. I mean, and I'm thinking, okay, that's kind of an everyday occurrence. Sure. But his dad yelled at him to get his foot off the bench. So apparently Danny's just had enough of him, and he looks at his father, and he smirks and says, I got my foot on the bench, old man. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> to which his father replies, I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it, and he proceeds to go to the back of the house. So Danny finished tying his shoes and he started walking out the door when his father ran into the kitchen with a gun, because that's what he had went to get, and his father yelled, I'll get rid of all of you. So Danny ran outside as his father chased him. Chased him. The father has his gun in the hand and he's fired, he fired three shots into the air. His father then stormed back into the house and bolted the door behind him. So, when his father gets back in the house, bolts the door, he picks up the phone because he's going to make a phone call. Danny actually crashed through the door and crouched by the table in a defensive position. And he screams at his father, you want to shoot somebody, you want to kill somebody, kill me, but don't hurt my mom. So, as his father turns toward him, his father fired uh, two more shots at him. Danny fires three shots of his own from a thirty-eight pistol that he had gotten from the tool shed outside. One of the bullets hit his father in the stomach, and the other hit him right between the eyes. Now, wait a minute. Why the hell they got guns in the tool shed? I have no idea. <sighs> I don't know. Okay. Maybe because he's Rambo, and you got to have to, uh, like, guns hit out everywhere? I guess. you got to get them quickly? I guess. His father collapsed on, collapsed on the kitchen floor. Danny cursed at his father and then kicked him before he left the house. So about 10 p.m. that same night, Steve Clawson and his wife, Louisa, are relaxing in the upstairs bedroom of their Shreveport home. They're relaxing, and Steve hears Louisa let out a frightened gasp, and he looks to her like, what's wrong? And when he looks over at her, he feels a presence of someone behind him. So he turned, and there's Danny standing in their bedroom. And they're both kind of taken aback, and um, they said that he was dressed in camouflage pants, army boots, and a t-shirt with a bandana around his head, and he's holding a gun. And he tells them, you really need to get security lighting. <laughs> so 
So Steve and Louisa had actually met Danny several weeks earlier. They were at Superior Grill. They were waiting in the lounge and they were discussing, they were actually discussing putting in security lighting because they actually have a, a 30 acre property. Danny was seated next to him and he overheard them and he's like, excuse me, I overheard your conversation. I happen to be in the electrical business. Can I come out, make a bid on the job? And they're like, sure. So they said he was very honest, nice and polite. So he came over, he gave them an estimate. But a few nights later, he showed up unexpectedly. He was knocking on their rear window downstairs. They invited him in and they noticed that he had been drinking. And so they sat there and they talked to him and he opened up to them about his time he served in jail. And I don't know if he told them about all the times he was in jail or if, you know, he just nitpicked. Um, and he told them that they had been nicer to him than anyone had ever been, including his own family. So I guess he kind of feels like a little safety comfort with them. Sure. Not sure. Right. But now he's standing in front of them with a gun. And in he, their bedroom at night. In their bedroom. And he tells them, I'm in big trouble. I just shot my father. I want all your money because I need to get out of town. So they're like, oh, crap. So the first thing they they think, they're like, okay, let's just try and calm him down. Mm -hmm. You know, because obviously they want to make it out of this situation. So it, over the next two hours, he alternated between being nice or he would just get angry. He would sob, put the gun down on the table. Other times, picks the gun back up and he's just belligerent with anger. So Louisa gives him $30 because they didn't have any cash on him other than that. She gave him some cookies and an apple. <laughs> And he was happy with that. So he tells them, okay, I guess I need to go. So he asked them to promise not to call police when he leaves. And then he apologized for tracking mud on their carpet. So he leave, no incident, they're fine. So he leaves Shreveport and he traveled through multiple states, committing rapes and robberies along the way. Dang. He made it to Kansas City, Kansas by a Greyhound bus where he lived with some hippies for about a month. In June of 1990, he robbed two Kansas City grocery stores, a Taco Bell, and broke into a home where he stole the ID card of a Michael Kennedy Jr. and also a 22 handgun. On June the 12th, he robbed the Westwood United Superstore in Kansas City. And then when he was leaving, he told the cashiers, thank you, God bless, please pray for me, I need it. <laughs> and he escaped with over $1,600. He came back a few days later to rob the store again, and this time he left with $2,000. That's So he traveled by bus to Boulder, Colorado, where he attempted to rape a blonde woman on a mountain climbing trip. She resisted, so he beat her till she was bloody, but she did get away, and he didn't rape her. In Denver, he robbed a convenience store with the stolen twenty-two, and then he hitch hitchhiked back to Kansas City before heading south again. So, in July 17th of 1990, he's in Tallahassee, Florida, using the alias Michael Kennedy Jr., because he stole it. He traveled, he checked into a travel lodge. The next day, he buys a Marine K-Bar fighting knife at the Army-Navy store. So, I, before I started this, I mean, I'm not a weapons person, mm -hmm. but... I didn't even know there was a such as a K-Bar knife. So, a little backstory on the K-Bar knife. They originated in 1923, 
when the manufacturer received a testimonial letter from a fur trapper. The trapper wrote that while trapping, his rifle had jammed and he only had his knife to kill a wounded bear that had attacked him. He thanked the company for making the quality knife that helped him kill a bear. But in the letter, the part where it said kill a bear wasn't really legible. All they could see was the K letter K, A, bar. So therefore, the manufacturer is like, that's, that's a good name. So they named it the K-Bar. So they designed a new fighting knife for the U.S. Marine Corps during World War II. This knife was stronger and more durable than what they had. Soon, the Army, Navy, and the Coast Guard adopted the K-Bar as well. It became the knife of choice for causing maximum damage to another living being. On July 22nd, he took a bus to Sarasota, Florida, where he checked into the Cabana Inn Hotel as Michael Kennedy Jr. While there, he recorded songs on a portable tape player that he had stole. <laughs> he starts a farewell message to his family, the the rest of which he will record in August. While he's in Sarasota, he dates a woman that he meets at the Cabana Inn Bar. On August the 18th, he steps off a bus in Gainesville, Florida. He checked into the University Inn by paying cash to rent room 104. And then he spends the next few days scoping out the area. He notices that there are many attractive young brunette women around. And it was said that he liked brunette women because yeah. his wife. His wife. Mm -hmm. Yep. On August the 23rd, he checked out of the hotel and he made a campsite in a clearing in the woods on Southwest 34th Street. At the center of the camp, he put up a small tent that he had purchased at Walmart. Later that same night, a security guard stumbled across him as he's standing on a bucket peering into a two-story window of an apartment. Mm. The guard asked him, what are you doing? And Danny confused the guard by replying to him in an accusing tone, I saw what you did. What? Yeah, and Danny calmly walked past the bewildered guard and disappeared into the woods. So he like totally caught the guard <laughs> off guard. What the hell? I know. He's sitting here like peeping and he guard walks up and he's like, what are you doing, dude? He's like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. I saw you. That's stupid. <laughs> Apparently it worked, though. I mean, that guard is like, huh? what just happened? Did it, was I doing something wrong? <laughs> did you see what oh, I did earlier? Shit. Wait a minute. You saw that? <laughs> <laughs> so, he finished taping the message to his family that he had, you know, started earlier, and he prepared for his killing spree. He dressed in the clothes of a killer. He was wearing dark colors for the dark night and a dark purpose. He left his campsite in the woods and crept toward an area of houses. He stole a bicycle. And as after he pedaled past a hospital, a police car pulled up behind him. And the officer asked, what happened to your light? And Danny's like, what light, officer? And the, the cop says, you have to have a light on your bike after dark. Well, obviously, he didn't know that. And obviously, he stole the bike. So, like, this ain't, look, man, I, I don't know nothing about these rules, and this ain't even my bike. What you talking about? Right. Blame the kid that had it. 
So, Danny explained that he had just moved to town and was on his way to a party, but he had gotten lost. So, apparently, this is a college town, so the officer, I'm sure, had heard the story before about people going to a party they had gotten lost. Sure. He smiled understandingly and gave Danny directions, reminding him to get a light for his bike. Danny says, I definitely will, <laughs> and tells him, thanks, officer, as he pedaled away, and, and he was amazed at his luck that he got away, and he was also eager to resume his nighttime hunt because tonight he would be roaming the southwest area of Gainesville, preparing to commit rape and murder. Oh, man. And that's where we're going to stop. Oh, man. But it's like this cop stopped him. This, that, that right was, yeah. before. I know. I know. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, that this could have ended right there. It could have ended right there. But, I mean, there. I mean, they didn't have any indication, you know? There wasn't. Right. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. You gotta wonder. I mean, this dude, this guy, this grown man on a bike. Mm -hmm. You know, was it a kid's bike? Was it a mountain bike? You know, was it a girl, little girl's bike? You know, you gotta kind of think. Was it? What did the officer see? Was there something there that made him think something's not right here? Well, obviously, because he didn't have a light on the bike. Didn't have a light, but look at how you said he was dressed. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah. Yeah. And nowadays, cops are going to pat you down. Right. They would have found that K-bar. Mm-hmm. But, and probably a gun. I don't know. You ain't got that for you. But, right. Well, yeah, that just, uh, that's a hell of a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. So, definitely are looking forward to hearing part two. Uh, and this is just going to be a part two? Yeah, it's just going to be a part two. Wow. Um, and yeah, and part two is going to be um, pretty gnarly. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah, so. Well, uh, thank you for getting us to this point. You're welcome. And want to remind everybody that of our email address, cdisturbedpodcast at gmail.com, mm -hmm. our Facebook page, Criminally Disturbed, and our Instagram Criminally Disturbed Podcast. Yes. Until the next time, I am Paul. And I'm Jamie. And we are Criminally Disturbed. We will see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.